Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Zechariah chapter 12. I mentioned in the episode on chapter 9 that all of these oracles, these four eschatological oracles at the end, are depicting the great events associated with the conclusion of God's work of redemption. The trick is knowing whether they are to be associated with the work of Christ in his first coming or his second coming. In general, I think the first two visions more directly and obviously relate to the first coming of Christ. Remember, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the evangelists explain that by reference to Zechariah chapter 9. So I think we're on very firm ground in making that connection. But then I think the last two writings more directly relate to the second coming of Christ. In the last three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, the most common phrase used is the phrase, on that day. Anthony Pedersen says here, the phrase on that day occurs 17 times in these three chapters and refers to the day when the Lord will establish his kingdom on earth in glory, Close quote. So I think in general terms, we are moving towards the end of the end in terms of the actions and events being depicted. The events depicted in chapters 9 to 11 were the events leading up to the cross, whereas the events depicted here in chapters 12 to 14 are those that lead up to the crown. The climax of this section comes in chapter 14, verse 9, which says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Praise the Lord. So, zooming back in here in chapter 12 and into chapter 13, we're talking about the pierced one. The vision itself has two scenes. It begins with a prediction about a great battle when all the nations of the earth surround Jerusalem, but the Lord protects Jerusalem and fights on her behalf. He uses Jerusalem almost like bait in a trap, luring the nations in and then causing them to destroy themselves in their efforts to destroy her. Then in the second part of the oracle, we have a mass conversion as people look upon him whom they have pierced. That's where Gregory gets his title for this section. Now, remember, this section as a whole was originally intended to provide encouragement. Thomas McComiskey, for example, says here, if Zechariah's book ended at chapter 11, verse 17, there would be a void of uncertainty as to the nation's future and the fealty of God to his promises. The subsequent chapters round out the message of the book, bringing it to a triumphant conclusion. Close quote. I think that's important for us to see. At the end of chapter 11, the people of Israel have rejected their good shepherd, and as a result, he has rejected them. Zechariah breaks the staff, representing God's favor, and then he breaks the staff, representing unity. He says pretty clearly that in rejecting the good shepherd, the people have rejected God's grace, and they have essentially committed suicide as a nation. That's pretty depressing. That would be a hard way to end a book. But thanks be to God, we have these last three chapters. Here, the prophet promises an amazing future. He sees something. He sees God protecting the city of Jerusalem. And he sees the mass conversion of the people. And he sees not just the city, not just the Jews, but the whole world and 
all the peoples in the world finally and completely restored. It's a wonderful ending and a wonderful promise. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Let's just pause quickly here. God begins by reminding the prophet and the people that he is the God who created the universe. And he is the God who created the spirit of man. So if he can do those things, then he can do anything. There is no such thing as difficult to the God who created all things. That's just not an issue. So all that matters is what this God says he is going to do. And in verse 2, he begins to tell us, Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. Now, remember here, we're dealing with apocalyptic imagery. We're not reading a page in the phone book. So we need to exercise some genre sensitivity. These are pictures and they clearly mean something, but the correct interpretation of these depictions is a little more difficult to arrive at. And, and so here, I, I think we probably have to be a little more humble than perhaps we're used to. We, we need to use phrases like, I think the meaning here is, or the majority of interpreters suggest that, that's just the nature of working with apocalyptic imagery. Now, as applied to this picture, obviously we have some decisions to make. In, in these verses, a picture is being painted of a great battle around the city of Jerusalem. God is going to use Jerusalem like bait, luring the nations in. And, and then those nations are actually going to destroy themselves in trying to destroy her. That's what we're seeing in the picture. But what does it mean in apocalyptic imagery, the prophets generally use scenes and colors from the past in order to make predictions about the future. So most scholars will say that this sounds, this picture looks a lot like the story of the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians in the 8th century BC. Now that was the past even for the prophet Zechariah. In that story, the mighty Assyrian army had encircled the city of Jerusalem and looked to be poised for certain and absolute victory, when all of a sudden the angel of the Lord went out and struck the Assyrians with a plague and 185,000 soldiers died in a single night. You can read about that in 2 Kings 19. It will be just like that, Zechariah says. In the future, on that day, the nations will surround Jerusalem and God will go out and fight on their behalf once again. Okay, but what does that mean? Specifically, to, to whom or to what does that promise properly apply? Remember, the prophet is using a scene, a real historical scene, to say something about the future. But what? What is he trying to say? Is, is he saying that God will protect the city of Jerusalem in the future, the, the actual geopolitical entity known as Jerusalem, from all a, a, attackers in perpetuity moving forward? If, if that's what he's saying, then we've got a real problem because Jesus in the Gospels 
predicted that Jerusalem would be destroyed. And he advised his followers to flee it. You can read about that in Matthew 24. So is Jesus canceling the prophecy of Zechariah? That would be weird because Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's Matthew 5, 17. So what's going on here? Well, we need to remember that Jesus took all of these threads and anticipations in the Old Testament prophets and he absorbed them into himself. He said about the temple, for example, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's John 2, 19. So, of course, as John tells us, in that scene there, he's not talking about the physical temple. He's talking about himself. So Jesus seems to have understood that all of these anticipations, many of which were painted in real concrete colors, lifted from historical canvases, are actually telling a story about him. He, he's the temple at the end of the day. He's the ultimate temple. He's the, he's the thing that the temple points forward to. He is what the temple story ultimately anticipates. And his body, his people, are the true city of God. Do you see that? That's certainly how the apostles seem to understand things. Hebrews 12, for example, says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, the apostle says that to Christians, Christians, we believe, who were living at the time in Rome. So clearly, in the minds of the apostles, to become a Christian was, figuratively speaking, to come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So I have to believe, based on what Jesus says in Matthew 24 and, and what he does generally with Old Testament prophecies and based on how the apostles use these terms in the New Testament, I have to believe that what the Holy Spirit is actually saying in this picture that we're looking at in Zechariah 12 is that on that day, the future eschatological day, God is going to show up at the last minute, as it were, to defeat all the enemies of his people, all those who have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That is to say, in street-level English, on the last day, in the last season, in that last chapter, the nations are going to gather around the church. The nations are going to be driven mad by the church, and they are going to seek to destroy the church, but God is going to make the church like a heavy millstone that crushes all who seek to move it. He will sow panic and madness against all who oppose his people. Now, even that, the, the panic and the madness, that's Old Testament imagery again, isn't it? Remember Gideon, he defeated a great horde of enemies with just 300 men. How did he do that? Well, God sowed panic and madness among his enemies, and they turned on each other, each man's sword against his neighbor. He'll do it again on that day to save and preserve the church. Now, another interesting feature of this picture is that as God blinds the eyes of our enemies, he opens the eyes of some people who start off as enemies, but then midway through the battle appear to change sides. Look at verses 4 to 5 there. The people of Judah begin the battle on the side of the enemies of the people in Jerusalem. And then midway through, their eyes are opened and they join in the fight against our enemies. God makes them like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, according to verse 6. What in the world does that mean? Well, if Jerusalem equals the church, which I think it has to, then Judah represents people close to the church or adjacent to the church. These people convert and become formidable allies. So who are we talking about here? Well, 
Some see these simply as former opposers, enemies, atheists, antagonists, people who once hated Christianity, but who in the last hour, so to speak, convert and become powerful advocates. That could be. I wonder, though, if it doesn't refer to the other near branches of the Abrahamic tree, Muslims and ethnic and religious Jews. There are many hints in the Bible about a great future conversion of people from Assyria to Egypt. We see that in Isaiah 19, for example. And many understand the Apostle Paul in Romans 11 to be prophesying an end times mass conversion of ethnic Jews, who, of course, would be incredible advocates for the cause of Christ. Now, that's what I think is going on here. I say I think because this is not the phone book we're reading here. This is not the seventh commandment. This is an apocalyptic oracle using colors lifted from Old Testament historical canvases in order to describe the saving work of God on that day. So I think a little bit of interpretive humility is actually appropriate here. All right, let's carry on with our experience of this oracle in verse 6. We've already touched on this a little bit. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. So again, what we think this picture means depends upon how we've identified the various symbols. A, a picture is certainly being described, Jerusalem besieged by many nations, including even some of the inhabitants of Judah. Then mid-battle, the clans of Judah change sides and become powerful allies wreaking havoc upon the enemy, and Jerusalem stands secure. What you think that is intending to communicate, of course, depends again on, on how you've made sense of the various elements. John Calvin I think guides us safely to the essence of the matter. He says here, In a word, he intimates that the church would be perpetually established, though all mortals conspired for its ruin and assailed it on every side. Yet the sanctuary of God, as he had promised, would continue there still, even to the advent of Christ. For then we know Jerusalem was to be wholly destroyed together with the temple as an end was to come on all these things, and the world was to be renewed. Close quote. So Calvin says there, the essence of this is, is simple, that God is guaranteeing. He's, he's saying, a church assailed, yet established. A church surrounded, yet delivered, and ultimately confirmed with the world itself to be renewed. I think that's a decent summary of the non-negotiables of the simple essence, as it were, of this vision. Verse 7, and the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. All right, now, verse 7 is very interesting. As I've said a few times, at the start of the scene, it appears as though the house of Judah is allied with the enemies of Jerusalem. That doesn't come out as clearly in the ESV as it does in the CSB, for example. Verse 2 in the CSB says, the siege against Jerusalem will also involve Judah. Then verses 4 to 5 in the CSB say, I will keep a watchful eye on the house of Judah, but strike all the horses of the nations with blindness. Then each of the leaders of Judah will think to himself, the residents of Jerusalem are my strength through the Lord of armies, their God. So there it is more explicit that Judah begins this process on the wrong side, as it were. Then it sees that God is fighting for the people of Jerusalem and Judah switches sides. 
that sets us up for verse six about their incredible value as allies inside the ranks of the enemy. That's how the ESV expository commentary has it. It says here, commenting on verse two, it seems that Judah, referring to the inhabitants of the region around Jerusalem, is initially caught up with the nations in opposition to Jerusalem, closed quote. And then commenting on verses five to six, it says, when the clans of Judah see God defending Jerusalem and presumably protecting them amid the ensuing disarray described in verse four, they have a change of heart. God now promises to make them agents of his destruction against the people who come against Jerusalem, close quote. All right, so if we're right in these basic identifications, then verse seven seems to be saying that God will save these people who once persecuted the church, but who have been converted. These folks like the Apostle Paul, former haters turned passionate advocates. He will save them such that their glory will not be in any way inferior to the glory of those who are already a part of the covenant community. People who see the Apostle Paul prophesying a great mass conversion of ethnic Jews prior to the second coming in Romans 11 generally also believe that these people will become incredibly effective evangelists. Romans 11.15 is the key verse there. Paul says, For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So in the flow of Paul's argument there, he seems to be saying that if the initial hardness of the ethnic Jews actually sort of opened the door for the initial growth and expansion of the church among the Gentiles, what will their eventual conversion mean but life from the dead? It's a classic how much more argument, which seems to imply that the mass conversion of the ethnic Jews near the end of the church age will result in an absolutely incredible surge in world evangelism. And that certainly isn't hard for us to imagine. And it isn't hard to imagine that if there was a future mass conversion of Muslims to the Christian faith, if, if the entire Middle East united under the banner of Jesus Christ, if Muslims and Jews who formerly opposed Christ bowed the knee and claimed him as their Lord and Savior, it's not at all hard to imagine the impression that would have on the watching world. That could be what the prophet is foretelling here. Regardless of how far you want to press this interpretation, the basic message is reasonably clear. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says here, In the coming deliverance there will be no superiority or inferiority complexes or ranking of some above others in honor. Close quote. Amen to that. In verse 8, the prophet says that God will protect his people by making them strong. The feeblest will be like David and the house of David like God. <laughs> That's an incredible statement. God protects us by making us strong. We don't often think that way, do we? But that's what we're seeing here. In this picture, God makes the church so strong that anyone who tries to destroy her destroys themselves against her. Verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves and all the families that are left each by itself 
and their wives by themselves. Now let's first notice that the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem seem to go together. They do here in verse 10, and they do also up in verse 7. And that makes sense. Jerusalem is the city of David. And if our identification of Jerusalem as the church makes sense, then it is appropriate to think of the church as the house of David in a figurative sense as well. We see that in the New Testament. We think of Paul's opening words in his epistle to the Romans. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David. So to be in Christ is to be in the house of David. We see the same thing in Acts 15. In Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, when the church is trying to figure out what, how to make sense of this massive influx of Gentiles, they actually turn to a prophecy in Amos 9 about the rebuilding of the tent of David. And, and they look at the influx of Gentiles into the church and they say, this is that. The, the, the incredible increase of the church is the rebuilding, the renovating of the tent of David. So the apostles saw the people of Christ as having been grafted into the house of David. All right, so what's going on here then in verse 10? The house of David, the, the people of Jerusalem, people we've identified as the church. Why are they mourning for the one they have pierced? Obviously, that's Jesus. Few things are, are, are more obvious than that. In, in John 19, 36 to 37, right after the soldier pierces Jesus' side, John writes, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. So, so John is identifying Jesus on the cross as the locus of faithful meditation, as it were. He's making that connection for us. Jesus on the cross is him whom they have pierced. And here, what we're being told is that while God is working this incredible deliverance and dramatic conversion all around them, the covenant community is meditating deeply upon the person and work of Christ. Thomas McComiskey is here. The Lord's activity on behalf of Judah and Jerusalem will not occur apart from their spiritual renewal, closed quote. So this is a time of spiritual, theological, and devotional renewal, not just a time of dramatic numerical increase. The mention of all these different subgroups, the house of David, the house of Nathan, the house of Levite, and their wives seems to be a symbolic way of portraying a very deep, a very wide, a very personal, all-inclusive season of revival and renewal. Remember, this section, this oracle, is intended to be a, a great encouragement. Things were not looking good at the end of chapter 11. But here, things are looking very good. Though the nations rage, the Lord has done a great work of deliverance and renewal on behalf of his people. He has preserved them from their enemies. He has converted many of their enemies. And he has inspired in them a time of deep and sincere repentance and reformation. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. 
Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at Into the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 